Again, I want to welcome all of you to Sycamore View this morning. The Neijing Yangji River Bridge was built in 1968. And let me just say, I hesitate to tell any story about a bridge while we're living in Memphis right now, all right? <clears throat> this was a bridge that was built in 1968. It, it's the Yangji River is the longest river in China. When, at the time when this bridge was built, it was the longest river in the world that carried both cars and trains. And many researchers have also said that this is the bridge that has surpassed the Golden Gate Bridge for the most suicides in a year. In China, they say every two minutes, someone completes suicide. And every year, around 200 people go to this bridge to jump into the river to end their life. Just whatever form of hopelessness and despair may be there. For some, it's their working conditions. Some have been fired from their work and they don't have a family who will receive them because they live in an honor and shame culture. So a number of reasons for this. And there's a man named Chen Si, who is a young adult... And I, you got to love anybody who lives in China. If you go to the next image, anybody who lives in China who sports a Yankees cap every single day, this is who Chin uh, is. If you go to the next image, there's a picture of Chin on here. And he's a man who is a young adult. Uh, he hit a pit of despair and wanted to end his life. And it was like God provided an angel for him. It was a complete stranger who talked him out of it who helped talk him, to talk him into a better story, try to give him a little bit of worth, and now Chen spends the rest of his life trying to help other people. And there's part of that story that I love, and that what we do in the church when we come together is we remind each other of a better story. Uh, no matter what kind of hopelessness you may feel in your life, there is a better story that is available for you, and this is what we sing about, it's what we pray about, it's what we're trying to help each other live into, because the church is a place that's full of people who are hopeful and hope-filled and hopeless. The church is a place for people who think they have it all together, and for those who don't. The church is a place for those who, quote-unquote, are the haves and the have-nots. The church is for all people as we try to live into a better story. I coach a, a, a lot of my kids' sports. I'm not the best coach, but I enjoy being out there with kids. And one form of accountability we have, and this happened with our baseball team this past year, is whenever someone makes a mistake and they put their head down, I don't want to be the only one who's telling them to pick their head up. So as a team, whenever someone puts their head down because they make a mistake, the team holds each other accountable by saying, get your head up, head up, you're going to have another play. Head up and eyes open. Now, i got to be honest as a coach, there are times when inside what I'm thinking is, you should keep your head down right now. Like you're awful at what you do. Like, you should never play this sport again. Your parents waste $250 letting you play baseball every year. That's what I'm thinking inside. But, but at my best, what I'm trying to remember is, hey, get your head up. Because this isn't just a lesson for baseball. This is a lesson for life. Like, when we come together, this is part of what we do. Like, there are times when our heads are down Maybe in prayer, maybe in despair, and we are those who remind each other, hey, believers in God, lift your head up and open your eyes and be aware of what God is doing all around you and how God is redeeming you in ways you may not even know. One of my favorite stories happens in Genesis chapter 28. And there's this one moment in Genesis 28, and you'll see it here on the screen. There's this one moment, and what, what it says is, Jacob says this, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. In Genesis 28, this is a story of Jacob who's on the run. Like, he's out in the middle of nowhere. 
I mean, this is a guy who grew up in a family where it's Jacob and his twin brother Esau, and his parents played favorites. So you have mom who really likes Jacob, and dad who really likes Esau, and then Jacob like tricks his brother out of a blessing and in, tricks him out of an inheritance. And now Esau, one brother wants to kill the other brother, so Jacob is on the run for his life, going to Uncle Laban's house, and he's out in the middle of nowhere. And there in the middle of nowhere, he has this encounter with God, and there's nothing in the story that makes you think that Jacob is asking for an encounter with God or even that he's really seeking God. But it's there in the middle of nowhere in a place of uncertainty. He has an encounter with God and what he says is, surely God was here and I didn't even know it. Like I would love for this to be a statement that is true for somebody who's participating with us today that in a moment right now where you are struggling to see God at work in your life, that what you can say or what you will be able to say is, surely God was in that season of my life and I didn't even know it. I couldn't even see it then, but God was there. There's a phrase that I felt like God gave me about six or seven years ago, and it's a phrase I've preached on, I've written on this, and it's just five words, in the unknown, God dwells. In the unknown, God dwells. That God doesn't just dwell in the known, and God doesn't just dwell in the figured out places of life. In the unknown, God dwells. In the places of uncertainty, God dwells there. I was speaking back in 2015 at Gulf Coast Getaway. It's an event for a, a thousand or so college students every January. And, and I taught those five words to college students. Because most college students are in seasons of their life where there is some uncertainty, there are some unknowns, and I preach on those five words, in the unknown, God dwells. The next week, I got a message from one of the students who was there who sent me a picture of a tattoo she got on her arm or from her wrist to her elbow was, in the unknown, God dwells. I've never had someone go permanent with a point in one of my sermons or messages before, but she did. So this morning, we have a tattoo artist out in our uh, front lobby for anybody who would like in the unknown God dwells or maybe just having a permanent place in your heart where you can let that rest in you. In the unknown, God dwells. Because in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10 and 11, here's what you have. Jacob, he's on a run for his life. He's running from his brother. He thinks he's going to die. And he says this, Jacob left Beersheba and he set out for Haran. This is like over 100 miles where he's on this journey all by himself, middle of nowhere. And it says, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and he lay down to go to sleep. Now just notice in verse 11, it says, when he reached a certain place. Like there's not even like a city or town to put on it. He's just, he's out in the middle of nowhere, just in a certain place. And he's tired and he decides to go to sleep and all he can find, like there's no, there's no hotel, there's no motel. Like, there's no place for him to lay his head. There's, no, there, there's not even a pull-out sofa. There's no sleeping bag. There's no pillow. He takes a stone and uses it as a pillow. I don't care if you try to find the smoothest stone possible. You lay on it, it's not going to be very comfortable. And I can't help but think that in that moment, as Jacob is trying to go to sleep with his head on a stone that he's thinking to himself, good grief, like this is what my life has come to. My life has come to a point where I'm in the middle of nowhere running for my life, not sure what Uncle Laban's house is going to be like, and here I am sleeping on a stone. And have you ever been in a place in your life when you're like, man, I did not think this is what my life would look like. I didn't think when I was 30 that this is what my life would look like. I didn't think when I was 40 I would still pay off student loans. 
I didn't think when I was 50 that this is what would be happening in my life. And here's Jacob. I, I just, I never thought this is what it would be like. I can't imagine the anxiety, the uncertainty, right? the chaos, the confusion, the, the lack of clarity. There's a woman named Kara Powell. She wrote an article recently. Uh, if, if you'll throw this on the screen, because it's a really long title that she wrote about. It was an article called, Why You and Everyone Else You Know Feels Anxious and What to Do About It. Now, as an author, I've been taught and trained that when you write books or you write articles, you try to keep them short, right? Real catchy, one, two words. Every once in a while, there may be a longer sentence that becomes a title of a book or a title of an article, and, but this one sticks. Like when you and everyone else around you feels anxious, and what are we going to do about it? And part of what Kara writes about, and part of the research she shows, is that around a third of Americans, around a third of people in the United States, will suffer from some kind of diagnosed anxiety order in their life. We're talking about tens of millions of people. Now, researchers are kind of in agreement that there's not like one cause of the rise of anxiety over the last decade. They aren't really sure what causes it. Around a decade ago, what we do know in the year 2012, we do know that there was a rise in mental health challenges. What we also know is that back in 2012, that the United States reached a landmark in technology use where in 2012, over the majority, over 50% of people in the United States not only had a cell phone, but had a, a, some kind of smartphone device, a device where they could access the internet and social media. Now, most researchers would also say that it's an overstatement to say that technology is the primary cause of anxiety. We know it's a cause. What researchers also know is that for teenagers over the last decade, specifically over the last eight years, there has been a rise in anxiety and stress, depression, and suicide. And in the last eight to ten years for teenagers, there has been a decline of sexual activity, substance abuse, and teenage pregnancy. Which part of that goes to show you that we have a lot of young people, a lot of teenagers, and people in general who are living lives of isolation where they may be connected with people through devices but not sitting in the same room. And that may be a cause of some of this, especially over the last year of our lives. What we also know is that especially over the last 10 years, for teenagers and for all people, there is more and more of a demand to produce and to achieve in life. And this is through employers, through parents, teachers, coaches, and I am all for ambition. I'm all for pushing people and pushing teenagers. But there is a phobia that is a fairly new phobia that has set in over the last 15 years called atiki phobia, which is a fear of failure and a fear of letting people down. And what you have is a number of young people growing up with this phobia, atiki phobia, fear of failure and a fear of letting people down to where what they do in life is they no longer want to take risks. They just want to play it safe because they don't want to upset a lot of people. What researchers also know is that there is a, there's a, a, a major rise in uh, busyness and work hours. And if you were to look at countries in the world who have the highest rates of stress, depression, and suicide attempts, they are also the countries who have the most average work hours per week. Now, we also know that anxiety and stress are a gift from God. That anxiety and stress are like the, the flashes on your dashboard letting you know that something may not be right. That they alert us when we're in danger. This can be a really good thing. So Kara Powell in her article, she provides three questions. And you may want to write these down or take a picture of them for yourself. 
maybe someone close to you. And she's writing from a Christian perspective as she's talking about anxiety. And here are the three things she says, three questions she has. What do I need to pay attention to in my life? So when you see these, this uh, flashing light on the dashboard, what do I need to pay attention to? What healthy and productive step could I take now? It may be exercise. It may be uh, doing coffee with a friend. What healthy and productive step could I take now? And thirdly, who do we need more time with in this season? Who is the person or people I need more time with? She writes about that on a scale of 1 to 10. A question to ask is how severe is my anxiety, with 1 being the least and 10 being the greatest. And that if your answer is 1 to 3, you're okay. You've noticed the flashing light, you're going to be all right. If your answer is 4 to 5, it's handable. You can handle this. Right? You may need to keep gauging it, but if your answer is 6 to 10, there may be some steps you need to take in your life to either be with a trained professional mental health uh, therapist, or you need to take some steps in your life to get healthier. One of our core values is that we care about mental and physical health. I can't imagine what Jacob felt laying there on that pillow. The anxiety, maybe the depression, the uncertainty. What has my life become? What will my life be? And there he is laying on the ground with his head on a pillow. And I know that we live in a time right now where there's a lot of confusion and, and a lot of people, even as we're trying to seek out truth and we're trying to navigate social issues, it's like we're living in a time of just complete chaos where sometimes it's hard to know what's up from down or left from right. Things can be really confusing. And then like this past week, I saw Joyce Peterson who works for Action 5 News. She posted this picture right here. And tell me if you don't know we live in a crazy world when there's an article that says this. The Memphis drivers rank as a fifth best in the nation? And you know, man, I advocate all things Memphis. Like hashtag 901 for life. Like I, I love a lot of things Memphis. But I mean, maybe if there were five cities in this research, may, maybe. I don't know if anybody here would agree with this. You got some crazy drivers. And I know as you navigate life and you navigate times in life that you have to make so many decisions, and my heart goes out. I mean, when people, loved ones die, the number of decisions you have to make in such a short period of time, and some of you are in places in life where you're having to make quick decisions that have major impact on your future and on people around you. And there are decisions we have to make. Look at this image right here and tell me you don't notice a decision that was made in the moment right here in this store. <laughs> You've been on the Oreo aisle before, right? And most of us go down the Oreo aisle and you either have to decide yes or no, or you have to decide regular Oreos or golden Oreos. How many of you prefer regular Oreos over golden? Just a show of hands. How many of you would say golden Oreos are the best? Anybody? All right. There, there are a few of us who are right with God. Okay. I'm just joking. All right. But somebody made a decision right here. Do you see it? Somebody went into this store with a commitment to physical health. And they're not a bodybuilder. Somebody who is just making a commitment. You know what? I need five pound weights because I'm making a commitment to get better until they got on that aisle. And the decision was made. Ten pounds of weights to help out my life or 10 pounds of Oreos to numb whatever I'm going through in my life, right? And there are times we make these decisions, and we have things in a basket, and it's like decisions have to be made on a fly, and sometimes we make good decisions, sometimes we don't. And then it's like in life, sometimes it's just so chaotic. Like, it's hard to know if we're going in the wrong or right direction. I don't know if this is true or not. I probably should have checked it out. But if you go to this next image, a man was arrested for putting down fake social distancing arrows in Ikea and creating a labyrinth with no exit. 
And somebody participating today, you've had this thought before. Let me just change a few of these arrows in Ikea and just see what happens. But there are times in life, like it's like you're going through some kind of Ikea and you don't know how to get out of certain situations. You feel stuck. Like, what do you do? And here's how this rest of this story goes with Jacob. He's laying down on a pillow. And then the story picks up in verse 12. As he's laying there, he had a dream. In which he saw a stairway resting on the earth. And that stairway, literally, it's a ramp. He had a dream in which he saw a ramp resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And I want you to catch this right here. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Which may not be a major point, but throughout the Bible, when you see ascending and descending, it's usually in that order. It's ascending and descending, not descending and ascending. So the image of Jacob is that the angels of God are with him down here, and they are going up and they're coming back down, not that they're resting in heaven, coming down and then going back up. That the presence and the hosts of heaven aren't just up in the sky somewhere or up in heaven, but that they are resting with us here on earth. So the images of angels going up a ramp and then back down a ramp. And verse 13 says, and there above it all stood the Lord. So the image Jacob has is that there is this ramp with angels that are moving up and down. But when it comes to a speaking voice, it's not just some angel next to him. It's the Lord who is there speaking to him in this dream. And here's what God says, verse 13 through 15. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jen, let's leave it right there just for a moment on this slide. If you'll go back to that last one. Yeah, right there, just for a moment. I want you to notice that what God says to Jacob is this God on repeat. God has said almost the exact same thing to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob. And God's going to say almost the exact same thing to other forefathers and foremothers throughout the Bible. That sometimes the word of God that needs to come into your life is not a fresh, new, specific word for you in your time. Sometimes the word of God that needs to come to your life is the same word of God that has come into those who have gone before us. The same reminder of the promises of God. And I take comfort in that, that sometimes what God is speaking over me are the same things that God spoke over Abraham or over Jacob or even over Jesus. This is my son. This is my daughter. With them I am well pleased. God who is helping to remind us of our identity. He's speaking these promises over him. Now, Jen, if you'll go to that next slide. Here are three specific things God speaks to Jacob in verse 15. I will be with you, a promise of God's presence. That I will keep you, a promise of God's protection. And that I will bring you back a promise of homecoming. Like these are specific promises that God is giving Jacob. I'm with you, I will keep you, and there is a new place for you. You will be going home. Now here's where this becomes just one of my favorite stories. In verse 16 it says this, When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't even know it. I wasn't even aware of it. And he was afraid and he said, How awesome in this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. 
And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. It used to be called Almond Tree. Now it's called Bethel, which means house of worship. So now Jacob has had this encounter. And what I love is that in this story, the pillow becomes the pillar. The object that stood for his place in life of uncertainty becomes an object of God's faithfulness that was going to be remembered for decades. And I hope, whether you know how it's playing out in your life or not, but that pillow or that obstacle in your life, the challenge or your uncertainty, will become part of your story of God's faithfulness in your life. And then Jacob goes on to make this confession to God. Like, God, if this is you and this encounter is real, which Jacob believed it was, I'm going to live into this covenant for the rest of my life. It was about this time, just after my sophomore year of high school, that I had this pivotal month of June for me that set my life in a direction that I'm still trying to follow. And it was a month after a semester that was, my my second semester of my sophomore year uh, was probably the furthest I've ever been from God. I believed in Jesus. I was still going to church. My dad was the preacher. I was a PK. I just had a few months where I just, I was making a lot of decisions for myself. I went to church camp that year thinking in my my mind that, uh, I mean, I, it just happened that the topic of church camp was dealing with the same things I've been battling and struggling with in my life. And I remember receiving the grace of God and hearing some powerful words at a week at church camp, but what I was left wondering, I grew up in somewhat of a legalistic church, was, yeah, but the things I've done over the last few months in my life, is the grace of God and the forgiveness of God really powerful enough to transform this? And and is is the forgiveness really for me? And if so, what does this mean for my life? And I went through what I would just call about a three-week funk, where I was asking a lot of questions of God. And my sister came home from college about that time, and Jenny and I always had a close relationship. And Jenny came in my room one night. She started asking me questions about life. She started asking me questions about my prayer life and my faith and my life with God. And then she just started asking like point blank, blank questions about some of the sins I've been struggling with in my life. And she said, Josh, here's what we need to do later tonight. I think we need to sit down with mom and dad and confess our sins. And I remember looking at her saying, Jenny, 16-year-olds don't confess sins to mom and dad. Like, that's, that's not what we do. I'll be there to support you as you confess your stuff, but I don't feel a need to confess mine. She talked me into it. We sat down with my mom and my dad last night, or that night. Jenny went first. She started sharing some of the stuff she had done in her life, and my mom, I'll never forget, she was already a basket case before it got to me. And I shared a couple of things, and I'll never forget it. My mom stood up and she ran out of the room, and I thought she left the room because she was just so disappointed. She just couldn't be in the room any longer. And it was only about 15 seconds, but in a moment like that, 15 seconds felt like eternity, that my mom came back in the room with her Bible open to the Psalms. And she just came and she stood over my sister and me, just with her hand reaching out to us. And she, just, she would read a psalm, and then she would flip it to another the psalm. I mean, it was like my mom's book. She had memorized like the whole thing, so she knew what she was doing. From Psalm 103 about the forgiveness of God. Psalm 84 of seeking God more than anything else. Seeking my, my, putting, turning my face, O oh Lord. Psalm 27. Psalm 51. Just forgiveness and grace. 
And it was the first time in my life I felt like I could open up my hands, receive the grace of God, and know that this grace could totally transform everything in my life. I didn't know at that point the ministry is what I was going to do with my life. I just knew if there's a God who can love me through the things I've done, I want to serve Him in whatever that looks like in my life, whether it was ministry, preaching, coaching, whatever it was going to be, I want to serve Him. There in that place, Jacob makes a renewed commitment. Jacob wasn't even, as we know, Jacob, as far as we know in Genesis 28, Jacob isn't even crying out to God for salvation or redemption, but God found him in that place, had an encounter with him, totally transformed his life. 20 years later, Jacob is coming back from Uncle Laban's house. Over, after 20 years, you can just go read it. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that happens in those 20 years. And then you start hearing stuff like this. In Genesis 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Listen to this in Genesis 35. This is like 20 years after Jacob set up this, this pillar, set up this altar. It says, God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. God is reminding Jacob of that encounter in Genesis 28. And in verse 6 and 7, Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and there he built an altar, another altar. And he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. So for Jacob, that place in Bethel wasn't just the original place where he set up an altar. He took his family back there to retell the stories of God's faithfulness as a way to say how God was faithful to me 20 years ago. This is how God's going to continue to be faithful to us for years to come. So let me come back to this guy, Chen C. This was a guy who wanted to end his life as a young adult, and there was a complete stranger who encountered him and talked him out of it. In the year 2003, September of 2003, Chen was walking across the Neijing Yangji River Bridge with his daughter, and as they were walking across, there was a young 19-year-old woman who they saw by the edge of the bridge, and as they were about to walk by her, she jumped. And Chen, just out of instinct, reached out his hand and grabbed her and ended up catching the back of her coat and pulled her back over. And that moment, that day, Chen made a new commitment that every weekend of his life, and he has done this now for almost 20 years, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, he patrols the Neijing Yangji River Bridge. And he patrols and he's learned to look for signs of people who may be thinking about ending their life. Either there's, there's sadness, or they leave a bag down and they, they're pacing. And you'll see in these next two images, they credit him to 400 saves over the last 18 years. And he leaves notes in places around the bridge, and not only does he save them, he now rents out an apartment where he takes everyone he helps save. And it's an apartment for them to recover and to receive therapy and to receive help. And they call him the Angel of Neijing. Now, I wish I could tell you that it was faith in Christ that has led him to do it. And it, it's not. He's, he's not a believer in God. But there's something about that image that makes me think about the church and who we are and who we are called to be. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you 
just to hold the bread and the cup in your hand for just a moment. If you're online with us, if you have the bread and the cup close to you, if you want to get those, if not, just stay with us in this moment for, for just a minute. And I'm not suggesting this morning and my, my move into communion today, our move into communion, isn't me trying to convince you of anxiety in you that may not exist. But in a room with this many people, I'm assuming that there is some anxiety that is having its way with you right now. And maybe there's someone who's participating today who's thinking about just jumping, like you just don't know if life is still worth it. And I hope that something God has said today has given you a sense of worth, that even in the unknown, God dwells there. And there may be some of you, it's not that you're about to like jump, but you're just at a place where you're just wondering, like, what is life about? And where is my worth? And what does my future hold? And could this be a place today where as we take the bread and the cup, that there's something about faith in God, faith in Jesus, salvation that comes in Jesus, that will enter into your life to remind you that there is a better story to live into. And for the rest of us in the room, for all of us in the room, part of the mission of the church is that we are called to be those who are used by God to save people, to look for those who are hurting, to reach for them. And as we hold this bread in our cup in our hands, we're going to sing a song, Just As I Am. And I'm asking you for you to hold on to the bread in the cup as we sing this song. I come wounded, I come broken, I come desperate to be healed. And as we sing this, as we lead into communion today, maybe you sing this for yourself, but let's also sing this for each other today. As we ask, not only that we are for us to reach to God, but as we are reminded today that God is reaching for us. Let's stand together. Let's sing.